This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Why D&D won. Jim Zub. And Robin at the Toronto International Film Fest 2019. I think it's fair to say that our heads are full of ideas for games. Sorry, can't hear you over all these game ideas in my head. If you, cherished listener, are anything like us, you've also got some great ideas for games in your head. But unlike award-winning podcast hosting game designers like us, you may not know what to do next. Atlas Games to the rescue! The White Box, created by Atlas Games and Game Playwright, is a game design workshop in a box! It's got a ton of generic components like meeples, cubes, Dice, tokens, and discs. And it's got a 200-page book of 25 essays about game design and publishing, with topics like refining your design, playtesting, crowdfunding, and how to work a convention. In short, the white box has everything you need to get your game idea out of your head and onto the table. Learn more at atlas-games.com slash thewhitebox. Or follow the link in the show notes. You can get the white box right now everywhere tabletop games are sold. But Ken, here's the rub. I also can't even hear you over these game ideas. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the friendly confines of the gaming hut. And within the gaming hut, uh, look at that. We got your graph paper, we got your beholders, we got your fighters and rangers and clerics and barbarians and your polyhedrals. We're playing Dungeons and Dragons, Robin, because we're in a gaming hut, which leads us to the question by Patreon backer Timothy Daly, who asks, why do you think Dungeons and Dragons became the biggest RPG of all time? Robin, is your answer the same as mine, or is it a different answer? Uh, does your answer involve the, the marketing concept first mover status? It does. It does. Um, so, role-playing games are interesting in that, in some ways... Uh, they are uh, works of art slash entertainment, and in other ways, they resemble packaged goods in a way that they uh, occupy uh, the imagination of the public. And uh, it is a known thing in the sale of packaged goods that normally the first big national product that comes along in a category just continues to occupy that uh, slot uh, forever because it does what it set out to do, uh, and it does it well enough that uh, people don't uh, need to, uh, by and large, uh, switch their allegiance because the thing that they, uh, started out with, uh, still works perfectly well. So, uh, you know, whether it's a, a toothpaste or a cola or what have you, uh, the, the brands that start their category that invent what they are, uh, continue on and on. You could also ask the question, why is Magic the Gathering the, uh, biggest, uh, adjustable deck game? And the answer is, well, it uh, did a really good job of being what it was. It did a good enough job to uh, create a whole audience for its category and uh, therefore continues to occupy that slot. Now, that's not a knock on Dungeons & Dragons at all. I'm not saying no. that... No, oh, yeah, toothpaste is delicious. So yeah. is Coca-Cola. I mean, that's not delicious. It's it's, effect, it's It whitens your teeth is what I'm trying to say. 
And Coca-Cola is delicious. And, and actually, I kind of blew it by mentioning toothpaste because right. that's the one category where an innovative product knocked off the number one. Colgate used to be number one. Crest was the first one to introduce fluoride. Ah, Crest had second mover advantage. Crest actually had a genuine uh, distinctive selling point that moved people from one to the other. Right. Uh, but it's, you know, D&D being the Coca-Cola of uh, role-playing games, uh, you love you some uh, uh, Coca-Cola and... Uh, you understand that that's why uh, why D&D is still very popular. Right. I think the reason why first movers apply in role-playing to make this an actual answer, as opposed to just saying first mover advantage, is that switching costs are a huge thing in role-playing games. And we see that even now, uh, where someone's like, I want to learn one system and play role-playing games. I don't want to learn five systems or two systems. Um, and that switching cost, that what uh, famously was called network externality, uh, back during the, the palmy days of the uh, open gaming license, is that there is a very real time investment in learning to play any role-playing game well. Take advantage of its unique uh, Phillips of mechanically. Uh, learn the fun lore that makes it more exciting than just sitting around and, and uh, BSing about movies for four hours. Uh, figuring out ways to make your knowledge presentable at the table and exciting to other players. All that is generally restricted to one game system and all of that takes time and effort. And when you are not 11 and just a big old sponge for absorbing things, when you're a grown person, for example, or even a person in college who has other interests such as, I don't know, getting your degree or uh, your preferred gender for mating or delicious foodstuffs and alcohols, role-playing games can take uh, a perhaps ill-deserved fourth place. And so you don't have the amount of time that you would like to have even. You could intellectually say, yeah, I would like to know all these games, but I just don't have the time to do it. My whole game group loves D&D. We have a great time. We're done. And it's that switching cost, I think, that is the real reason that even though Crests came along uh, to threaten the Colgate of D&D, most notably, I think, Call of Cthulhu and then maybe Vampire, neither of them in the long run was able to do it because the cost to switch over from one system to another was so great that even though Vampire had so many great advantages uh, in play, or, it's, or, it's, or certainly in, in, in social uh, credit, uh, it wasn't able to, to dethrone D&D. And even when D&D itself was off the market for you know the better part of a decade, D&D clone Pathfinder sat atop the, the the lists just fine, and no one really had to pay any switching costs to, to learn it. And now that D&D is back, I guess you could ask the question, why did uh, 5th edition take back Pride of Place from Pathfinder? And that would get into the weeds of specific mechanical choices and brand loyalty versus uh, less brand loyalty and, and whatever else. Right, because you're, you're talking about the, the lock-in effect, which is right. uh, absolutely real, and uh, people often uh, will cause uh, annoying, useless arguments uh, by phrasing that in a different way, which is system doesn't matter. You can run anything with any rule set. Um, what they're really saying is I really like D&D and don't want to play something else. But right. they phrase it in that other way, which then, uh, since they're saying something that's objectively untrue, causes arguments. But there is also the the brand value of something existing and having... You know, if you're if you uh, are going through customs and explaining to people you're going to a, a, a tabletop game convention, and the customs official asks what that is and doesn't know, we said, well, yeah, well, it's you know, sort of like Dungeons and Dragons, and then uh, especially today, uh, people know that, and uh, so uh, folks 
entering even now, whether they're entering through streaming or because uh, Stranger Things makes them want to fight a Demogorgon, the name Dungeons and Dragons, the cultural weight of that trademark is such that people are are still immediately drawn to that. And as long as the uh, current version of D&D serves new people, and I think the real strength of Fifth is that it's the best at serving new players since uh, first edition since AD&D. And is actually probably, I think, objectively better at it. I mean, we all yes. learned to play AD&D great, but A, we were 11. And if you go back to AD&D now and you look at it comparing it to fifth, I mean, I still love it. It will always be one of my absolute true loves of, of gaming. And I think the GM, the DM's guide in particular it did some things that are still not being done. But in terms of how easy is this for a new person to pick up and learn? Oh my God, 5e wins. It's just, yes. a, it's a no-brainer. Um, but that's a combination of very smart design goals being well-realized mm-hmm. under the umbrella of a uh, brand that is just, uh, has that inbuilt cachet, right? Because right. if you if you ever want to get into another country to go to a game convention and say, you know, it's like Pathfinder, <laughs> that is not going to help. Um, and... Uh, another thing that, you know, network effects matter for, matter more even than whether you need to learn a new rule set is, can you find other players to play this thing? So if you're looking for other Dungeons and Dragons players, you, as now, as you ever have, in whatever uh, era of D&D, you have an enormous advantage in finding players uh, than if you are trying to find vampire players or Call of Cthulhu players or, uh, you know, uh, gumshoe players for that matter, right? That the the more uh, targeted uh, and specific a, a game is, the uh, harder it is to find uh, players for. Whereas D&D, uh, one of the other brilliant things about it is that not only is it very sticky, right? It has a core activity that basically allows a game to run itself mm-hmm. um, and is very clear um, and uh, doesn't necessarily require an instinctive mastery of uh, narrative form. But it's immediately intuitive. Lots of people... Uh, know what it is so you can find uh, players and uh, it's it's the name brand it's the it's the giant uh, you know people D is essentially a synecdoche for uh, role-playing yeah and um and i guess you can say why did it succeed during those crucial early years you know against possible competition such as traveler or call of cthulhu and i guess that comes down to what you said just the sheer genius of coming up with a core activity that could be designed by anyone who could roll dice and run pretty much by anyone who could roll dice and all the stories about how awful my DM was, you'll notice the people telling those stories are telling them in many cases on role-playing forums because they're still in the hobby. And so even if it was your big brother who was a jerk to you, there was something so core about doing that Whereas your big brother, if they were a jerk to you in Traveler or they were a jerk to you in Call of Cthulhu, you could very easily see it saying, well, then I'm never getting on another spaceship or I'm never going to go to another haunted house. I don't care how many uncles die. But in a dungeon, it's like, all right, everyone died in the dungeon. We're going to make new people. We're going to go and kick your basilisk butt. And then that's going to be a thing. And I think that the ability of, and you know, as you know, Robin, I'm a giant artisan Stan. He's my hero. But Gary very rapidly recognized that the selling point of Dungeons and Dragons was the dungeons. And he did a lot of very hard work, uh, him and a lot of other people that he may or may not have taken credit for to make a lot of very interesting dungeons that sort of showed you 
what it was you were supposed to be doing pretty early in the product cycle. So by the time Traveler is out, uh, you've already got a, a couple of the iconic dungeons, and certainly by the time Call of Cthulhu is out, you have almost all of them, with the exception, I guess, of Ravenloft, is the only really alpha early dungeon that isn't in existence by then. And the games that sprung up in reaction to uh, D&D either had the same core activity as D&D, but less fully realized, so like right. Tunnels and Trolls. Tunnels and Trolls, another great game, trip. but again, you can you can imagine everyone from 1977 to now saying, but I already do D&D. Right. Um, or, uh, with the exception of Call of Cthulhu, they had a less clear core activity. So, RuneQuest, for example, says, well, the problem with D&D is the combat isn't really realistic. Um, and we're going to set it in this cool mythic world, which was already pre-designed. But what you do in that mythic world is not as evident self-running as what you do in D&D. And it's still a fantasy game. Traveler... Uh, famously really has no apparent core activity and you have to puzzle through, you know, the, uh, GM says, well, you have a spaceship and there's a million things you can do with a spaceship. Which one do you want to do? How about shipping manganese between planets? That's yeah, exciting. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> uh, and until, uh, you know, Call of Cthulhu has, we investigate occult mysteries. That's a, a very clear core activity, but it's more difficult to execute, which is why yeah. uh, we can make money selling adventures. <laughs> in that in that format, because uh, it's you, it's much harder to design your own uh, compelling mystery than it is to design a a dungeon. And uh, you know, if, if you go on down the line of all the different uh, you know uh, games that came along after that, it's like it's, this is a superheroes game. Okay, well, I guess okay, we fight bad guys, but that's still. It doesn't have that self-sustain. It doesn't have the grind, right? Right, and it's and that's a fight, not a story. Yes, right. I mean. In the theory, the super, and also superheroes are reactive, not active. So we wait around until uh, the clock king tries to rob the jewelry store, and then we go stop him from robbing the jewelry store. That's not the same as you've discovered a mysterious activity with all the all the town's clocks, and now you have to investigate it. And yeah, that's great if you're Batman, but it's not really what Superman does. Superman just shows up when the clock king has built his army of clockbots, and he blows them away with his heat vision. Well, I think uh, now that uh, we mentioned the clock. Uh, the, the main oh, no. thing that, in, in addition to robbing game. banks, the other thing that clocks do is they tell us when to end segments on this podcast. So uh, let's uh, uh, slip on out of this segment and uh, see what other fine, exciting, uh, perhaps glistening segment uh, awaits. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity. 
caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Hyde, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the role-playing game to the award-winning Gumshoe Engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe. What are you waiting for? The end of the world? Hey everybody, it's time once again for Ken and or Robin talk to somebody else. And this time around, we're both talking to Jim Zub. And I had a hard time narrowing down the things I was going to ask you about. Uh, but I yep. guess, describe the other hats that you wear. Sure. Hats. I'm doing a lot of comic book work, but on the gaming side of things, I've been doing the official Dungeons & Dragons comic um, for IDW since 5th edition launch. So that would be 2014. Uh, I co-wrote on the Rick and Morty versus D&D. I consulted recently on the Descent into Avernus set that's going to be coming out in a couple months, depending on when this posts. <laughs> and or it is just out now. No, it just came out now. Buy it at your local game store. <laughs> yeah. And I also uh, am, am writing on the uh, Dungeons & Dragons versus Rick and Morty uh, game box set that's coming out uh, also before the end of the year. And then, the thing we're actually talking about here, the newly released uh, Dungeons & Dragons Young Adventurers Guides from uh, Ten Speed Press and Wizards of the Coast. Uh, so, uh, for those unfamiliar with it, who are unable to paw through it uh, with their delighted hands, as Ken and I just did, uh, what is this? What does it set out to do, and what does it look like? So, these are the uh, smaller than your typical kind of uh, tabletop game books. They're visual guidebooks to the ingredients that make up Dungeons and Dragons. Ostensibly, they're made for like, you know, eight and up readers, but really you could give it to anyone who is unfamiliar with kind of how Dungeons and Dragons works as a storytelling sort of system. There's no rules. There's no dice rolling. It's really about roles and character, a lot of really beautiful artwork, and just getting people primed for the type of interactive storytelling that role-playing allows. People who don't know what a treant and a ranger is. Right. right. And so I know that as experienced gamers, it's really easy for us to be like, well, D&D is easy, you know, the rules all make sense, but we've been doing this for a, a long time. Some people, you know, their heads are more oriented around that kind of stuff and they can dive right into charts or they understand the dice systems and the attributes and all that kind of stuff. But these are really made for people who are timid about any of the kind of stuff, whether those are kids or older players who don't understand how an adventuring party is put together, what the different roles and races and options are, and just giving them a solid grounding in those foundational kind of creative ingredients and encouraging them to tell their own stories, to make their own characters, to be uh, interactive and engaged with the kind of storytelling that they're going to do while playing Dungeons and Dragons. And also letting them know to run when they see a beholder. Right? Yeah. Well, and so, yeah, the first two books that we've released are called Warriors and Weapons, which is all the martial classes and the races and a bunch of your standard non-magical equipment. And then Monsters and Creatures is sort of a uh, guidebook hitting the tops of a lot of iconic Dungeons and Dragons creatures with um, you know, uh, advice on where you can find them, their size, their habitat, and how dangerous they are, and then actual tips on what to do or what not to do if you encounter them. But in but in very very tight prose. I mean, yes. it's not 
the sort of, you know, paid by the word long. No, long it's this is just super Dorling Kindersley kids book of dungeon monsters. Absolutely. And it was really important to us that we broke it down to these real bite sized pieces and that we were thinking narratively about it. So, for example, the monster book is not alphabetical because I felt right. like there's nothing really dramatic about, well, we got to Z, you know. Yes. So what we did is we started underground. So all the creatures that we sort of have was in the underground. Then we moved to the surface. So you've got both like oceans, but then you got mountains and hills, um, what we call boneyards, like graveyards mm-hmm. and the undead. And then we soar into the sky for the finish. So we end with dragons, which feels right. like this really dramatic a culmination. Yeah, a good finish. And, and because they're oriented around where you can find them, it's really easy to sort of hang them together as groupings. Mm-hmm. And within each of those settings, we then have, uh, you know, alphabetical. Um, but what's really cool about it is all the books in the Young Adventurer's Guide series have brand new artwork. So there's over 70 new uh, full-color illustrations. Um, so even if you have all the D&D books, even if you know all this stuff, as a visual guide, you can hand it to anyone or you can show it to your players and there's something new there for them to discover. And you're using the word we, and that doesn't just mean yeah. that you're Toronto royalty, but right. you're part of a team. Yeah. So who else did you work with and who did what? Yeah, so uh, I assembled a team with the, the Random House crew and Wizards of the Coast. Adam Lee was our sort of point person at Wizards of the Coast, and he was the one who brought me on board after conversations we'd had about me starting playing D&D when I was eight years old back in the early 80s. Um, the co-writers I have on it are Stacy King and Andrew Wheeler, and they brought some great perspective to it as well because I'm sort of the, the old school grognard kind of player, and then they are... Um, like Stacy has uh, a tabletop gaming experience, but not maybe as much as me. And Andrew's relatively new to it. So he's bringing a fresh perspective and an outside view. Just, you know, what is new and fresh and exciting. Why, and, why, why is being umber a bad thing for a Hulk? Exactly. Right. Like <laughs> those kinds of things. Exactly that, that, that not just kind of being insular, but trying right. to come from different angles yeah. and, and be as creative and um, kind of fresh on it as we And, and the art is by the Wizards team? They, yes. The uh, people who are arting the rest of the books? Exactly. So uh, there's a, a studio called Conceptopolis that's done a lot of the artwork for 5th edition, and they were assigned on board it. And then I art directed the book and worked right. with them directly. I assume that, because obviously as a comics... Uh, I don't even say comics impresario as a comics no. titan. <laughs> Thanks, you man. are basically working with an artist is your remit in yeah. life. And even before that, when I was just working as a project manager at Udon, I worked with a lot of different role-playing clients and illustration clients. So mm-hmm. that felt very comfortable to me as well. You know, one of the things I stressed to 10 speed was that the more new artwork we could get in there, the better chance we had of grabbing, you know, already established Dungeons and Dragons, you know, readers. Right. And they came back, uh, really aggressively and said, what if we did all new art? So it wasn't just right. going to be the cover. Cause in your typical kind of thing, this would be the thing where you just pull down everything. Yeah, where from you the just, monster you have an art library and you're like, exactly. okay, here's a picture of a mind flare. Let's do right. a mind flare. And that flare. would have been the cheapest way to go. But I think what's great about this is that we've got a whole new library of artwork. So we were able to focus on different elements of it, or we were able to show kind of different designs. And when you were art directing it, you could say, you could feed it into the paragraph exactly. uh, and say, oh, we've talked about how the uh, mind flayer lives underground, let's put him in a cave or right. whatever. And, right. and, so you didn't have an, an illustration where the uh, mind flayer is carrying a scepter and then you have to, oh, we have to explain the scepter. Exactly. Right. And that's the nice thing about it is we were able to customize really the presentation on all of it. The other thing I was able to convince wizards about was because these are built for kids or for people coming from the outside, in categories like size, we describe things against real-world modern equivalents. Right. So if I say that a particular creature is longer than a school bus, now 
a kid can easily envision how right. how yeah. long that drag because is. Because even if you said that it was longer than a humpback whale, they're like, yeah. I don't know how big a humpback whale. Right. right. So you know, we talk about beholders, and we say the smallest beholders are you know the size of a. a, a beach ball, but then you could have the giant beach ball for the big beholders. So you can imagine that a kid Mm -hmm. can wrap their arms around it, or they can't wrap their arms around Mm -hmm. it, and they can envision that. Or if I say that Demogorgon is so tall that if you were on the second floor of a building and you looked out the window, he'd be looking back at you. Mm -hmm. There's something very visceral, and it really activates a kid's imagination. And that was really important to me, was that we were able to give people these waypoints to understand and, and, you know, really ignite their creativity with this stuff. And you said that the first two you've done, mm-hmm. I, I assume there's going to be more. Yeah, so we've got two more already in development. I was actually doing proofing on uh, one of them last night. So we've got Dungeons and Tombs, and right. then we've also got Wizards and Spells. Fantastic. So Wizards and Spells is going to encompass all the spell casting classes, as well as magic items and artifacts. Uh, they're sort of hitting the top points on a bunch of classic or you know iconic dungeons and dragons spells with right. lots of brand new artwork your, your big bees hands and whatnot exactly and then uh, dungeons and tombs is a run through of six famous dungeons from dungeons and dragons lore so a few of them are in there like the temple of elemental evil or the castle ravenloft we've got the island of chult which is from the tomb of annihilation But we also have a section in the back about how to make your own dungeons and how to map stuff out. When I was a kid, I loved getting out graph paper and just making dungeons. That back back section in the DMG where you roll on the tables and you create the graph paper dungeon, that possibly the single most innovative best part of Dungeons & Dragons. Absolutely. And as a kid, that idea that you were building a world, you were building a place. Yeah. All the little icons for all the different things you could put on the map. You know, this is what a barrel looks like, and this is a door, a secret door, a false door. And even just looking at the tables, it's like, oh my god, you can put that in a dunt? That's awesome. Exactly. And so, it's something where we want to try and, at every stage, trying to activate uh, a kid or a new player's imagination, show them the possibilities inherent in role-playing games, specifically, you know, Dungeons and Dragons. So how much does it address the question of what the heck a role-playing game is and what you do next once right. you've got this book? So it talks pretty clearly about you as a hero, or you are creating a hero and you're going to be building a story with your friends, right? So it doesn't go through any of the dice mechanics. It doesn't go through charts and tables or even attributes. It's more about kind of a narrative focus, like... Uh, is your character, you know, uh, fast? Are they bulky? Do they wear a lot of armor or are they, you know, swift on their feet and things like that? The, the concept being that you generate an idea for a character and then you bring that to the table either with the adventurers league or a friend who has the starter set will then show you how to activate those same things within the scope of the rules rather than you trying to parse out which dice to roll at which times. Almost all of us are starting D&D through someone else who's more experienced. So this is like all the ground floor information that you need without any of the... Someone's going to tell you how many hit points you have. Someone's going to tell you how much damage your weapon does. But you're going to tell them, hey, I envision my character with a cool rapier and they move swiftly and they've got a really, you know, this is their mission. And then for me, that's really important that people are not obsessing over numbers, but that they're thinking about roles right. and they're thinking about character. Because I started with Blue Box D&D, right. which famously does not explain anywhere <laughs> what it is. And you have to like figure it out. Or so, exactly. You know, for me, it's like uh, when we were putting the pitch together for the books, uh, I wrote pretty extensively on my vision on how I felt these could work. And that they're essentially built to hook 
eight-year-old Zub all over again, that they're codifying a bunch of information, big, lush artwork, and focused on cool storytelling and organization. So, like, the introduction to the Warriors and Weapons book is sort of at the heart of what we're trying to do here. So it just says, this is a fantasy story. You are the main character. Who are you? What do you do? This book is a way to answer those two very important questions. It's a guide to the fascinating races that populate the world of Dungeons and Dragons and the combat center classes that define their role as adventurers. It gives you a wide range of options to choose from along with armor, weapons, and other equipment to outfit your heroic persona. Read this book from start to finish or open it at any spot. Get pulled in by the exciting illustrations and start brainstorming from there. The more you read, the more character ideas will spring from your imagination. Every character is unique. Even when two of them share the same race and class, the decisions they make will take them on an exclusive journey that is yours to tell. Dungeons & Dragons is about building memorable characters, and the legends of your grand deeds are about to begin. So this is clearly a book for, uh, if our listeners are uh, thinking about this book, they they know what role-playing is. They yeah. presumably know what D&D is, but this is something that you can get for your uh, niece or your Absolutely. Uh, next-door neighbor. So how will you... And they're uh, priced that way as well. They're little hardcovers, but they're twelve ninety nine American, which right. is like... Yeah. Really, for what you get, you get over a hundred pages. Yeah, uh, no, it's full absolutely, color. it's absolutely worth it. That's yeah. the economy of scale that Random House brings. Exactly, to that's, yeah. Random House is part of this, and that yeah. doesn't even tell. Like on because they've been doing so well at the launch. At the point of this recording, Amazon's got them for six bucks, which is bonkers. You know, so we've been seeing a real surge of of interest in them. Yeah, well, I mean, it, you just have to pick them up, and like you say, your eight year old self is like, oh man. I I love this. Yeah, the number of photos I've been getting over the last few weeks from parents who are taking photos of their excited kids with the books. A lot of photos where the kid's head is down reading, cause, mm-hmm. so they're not even posing with them, but right, they're like yeah. absorbed, you know, right. in the back of the car or sitting on the couch. And, you know, for the parents, it, it's so funny to me because I know when we were growing up, the idea of gaming, specifically Dungeons and Dragons, went through that phase of oh my gosh, is this going to corrupt our children? And now it's like, hey, they're off their screens. <laughs> they're engaging with each other. They're being creative and they're super excited. This is the best stuff. All and right. that's been really just such a watershed change that I've been seeing in terms of the interest from schools and libraries, um, from you know uh, um, parents all over the place have been uh, just excitedly uh, sending me messages about the books. Just Bread the gospel. Yeah, yeah. It, it does feel like it's really come full circle for me, and I'm trying to get the next generation of of D and D people on board, and and understanding that at the core of this thing, it is about having fun, and it is about engaging with each other and making something that we we don't know where the story is going to go, but together we're going to discover it. Right. Yeah. So uh, naturally, part of the process is distilling what the core part of the setting is. What mm-hmm. What does it mean to be a D and D world? What right. does a D and D world have have to have in it that I have to tell you right away? But did you sneak in any more obscure bits that happen to be close to your heart? Any yeah, I mean, classic moment. <laughs> it's funny that way because we've got a series of these little encounters. So they're like a one page little bit of text. And then there's some decision-making at the bottom. So we say, this is what's happening to a particular character. 
what would you do in this scenario? You get to decide. We don't tell you what the answer is. You're going to figure it out, you know, in the course of telling a story, just priming them for role playing opportunities. And I got to work in some of the characters from the D&D comic series. Uh, I get to work in some of my favorite kind of canon characters. We have a legendary character example with each character class. So for the ranger, we've got Minsk and Boo. Because as a characters, they're so fun and they, you know, kids are going to love this ranger with a hamster on its shoulder. Um, you know, but we've got other characters in there as well. The rogue example is a character I made for the D&D comics named Shandy. So it just felt really nice to be able to bring some of that into the mix. And whether or not anyone knows who they are, just, you know, it's a fun character who's got a lot of potential. We made some new um, sort of signature characters because we wanted to show a bit more depth and breadth of what was possible. No offense to any of the people working in the 80s, but a lot of the character examples we looked up from old iconic stuff or from the novels were like white guys. Yeah. And so we're like, okay, well, we now have as many human characters. Can we now have as many just like white Caucasian males? So we wanted to break out and show different races and class combinations. So our, our signature paladin, for example, is a dragonborn that we made up called Red Clay, who's mm-hmm. a new character or, you know, stuff like that where we wanted to just push out and try different things. And hopefully people like those characters. Well, it's about time dragonborn got some representation. <laughs> Right, but just all kinds of different stuff where yeah. we're able to um, just show you know what's possible. I I love the Ravenloft module, so we sort of inject these little story threads across the books. So, for example, in the Wizards, or sorry, in the Warriors and Weapons book, there are the different um, adventuring kits, like equipment mm-hmm. packs, right, yeah. and one of them is a vampire hunter pack. Right, yeah. And then in the Monsters book, we have a section on vampires, and the legendary vampire is Count Strahd von Zarovich. In the Wizards and Spells book, we've got, as one of the legendary items, is the Sun Sword. And then in Dungeons and Tombs, we have Castle Ravenloft. So a kid can very easily, one plus one plus one plus one, like, here's a vampire hunting story ready to go. Right, he can can piece those things together, sort of solve the clues. Right. And say, oh, I, I... Get this Ravenloft right. story, but you don't have to. Like, we're not telling them it's all one story. It's right. just all the, all the dots are there for them to connect and use how they want to. And that makes rereading the story, the the books, even better because you, right. you know, the first time you're reading it, you're like, oh my god, what well, this stuff is amazing. And then the fifth and sixth time, because again, if you're eight, you're going to be reading. These you're books eating this stuff apart. up. You're like, oh, this connects to that. And then it's a whole nother puzzle and it's a whole nother fun thing. And then if you get really into the game and you go, wait, there's an entire campaign setting called Curse of Strahd and I could go into Castle Ravenloft and Barovia and do all that stuff. And it just unlocks a whole section yeah. of storytelling, you know, at their disposal or make it however they want. Uh, well, among your other hats, uh, you're definitely a convention warrior. Yeah. Um, and so I'm sure you have another obligation to run and get to. So it's thank true. you so much for uh, stopping by uh, to talk to us here on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. The best 
of Ask the Geln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Protect this podcast as you would the village of Hamlet, alongside such Patreon backers as... Andrew Miller. Roger Edge. Anders Moline. Ben Brigoff. And Jeff Cars. Uh, if you're noticing some uh, weird background that our beloved uh, Winnipeg engineer Rob Borges cannot remove, it is because I am broadcasting this from the wilds of Oklahoma City, literally in the wee below scout room of the Covenant Presbyterian Church, where I have been sent to find Wi-Fi. So uh, if things sound a little weird or echoey or noisy on my end, that's why. It's because I am in Partibus Barbaricum, Although, admittedly, it's the sound it's my, of Presbyterianism. It's the sound of Presbyterianism. It's it's decency. That's what you're hearing. That's what you're not used to hearing on this recording. Decency. <laughs> the soundless hiss of digital projection and the smell of maple-scented popcorn welcome us into that most Canadian of cinema huts, the Toronto International Film Festival Sub Hut. And as always, Robin is back from Toronto, or either back in Toronto from Toronto, uh, battered, bruised, worn, but ready to share with us the fruits of his labors. Robin, uh, how was the festival? Um, it was a really great uh, festival. Uh, this year, my favorite things uh, were uh, not immediately gamerific, but uh, the great thing about them was that they were all discoveries. There were two films that uh, came from filmmakers I was completely unfamiliar with, and another one from a director who I'd uh, seen a previous film of and liked, and uh, in this case, I really loved it. So, uh, I guess we should get to uh, my favorite things of the festival, although uh, none of these are super genre-oriented. And then once we get through the, the top ones, uh, we will focus... Was Trois Pinnacles. Yes. Um, so, uh, my very favorite film, uh, I think this is the first time this has ever happened, is a French comedy. Uh, the second film from an uh, a actor-director called uh, Nicolas Bedos. He's not in this film. Uh, it's called La Belle Epoque. And it is a sort of a metatextual farce in which uh, Daniel Atoy, who I'm used to seeing as the a handsome leading man, well, it turns out that uh, I've been going to the festival so long that now he is grizzled and gray-bearded, and uh, he plays a failing cartoonist uh, who is married to uh, a, uh, a woman who's like a high-powered executive in modern streaming uh, entertainment, uh, played by Fanny Ardant, and uh, their marriage is rocky, and she's uh, unhappy with him, and unhappy with the fact that he's depressed and unable to get work, and so she uh, kicks him out, and he then takes advantage of uh, something that a, uh, a friend of his son's offers him, which is an opportunity to book an experience through his company, Time Travelers, and this is not literal time travel. What it is is a super high-end tailored to one person LARP experience. You can choose any 
time in history to go back to, and he and his crack team of technicians and set builders and actors will build an experience for you to relive. And uh, instead of a particular historical period that they're already familiar with, he wants to go back to 1974 when he first met his wife and she still loved him. And so uh, you get him sort of falling for the actress playing uh, his wife and you get the backstage stuff of this uh, uh, friend of his who particularly loves his uh, his friend's dad and wants to have this experience uh, be great for him. And so you are continually, it's like a French farce. It's about uh, infidelity and uh, uh, losing love and getting it back. But instead of running between doors, the characters are running between different levels of reality. And again, there's nothing fantastical about this. It's all uh, realistic, but it's just so well done. The, there's an incredible energy to it. The uh, Betas has a real skill for uh, camera movement and cutting between characters and the editing is there and the music and the performances. Uh, and so it's just one of those things that uh, anything can be magical if it uh, works on all levels. So I have to give my uh, favorite of the fest nod to uh, La Bella Pop. So my uh, next uh, of my three favorite films is Love Child, which is a documentary from a Danish director named uh, Eva Malvad. And uh, it is one of those fly-in-the-wall documentaries that uh, follows people, in this case, a, a family of there's uh, a woman and a man who have fled from Iran with their child uh, because their relationship is adulterous, and uh, that is punishable by death. And so they fled to Turkey, and they are trying to uh, apply for refugee status and then get permission to go to a safe country. Such as not Turkey. Not Well, <laughs> yes, uh, it's not Turkey, and especially it's not Turkey if you're next door to Iran, where if the authorities decide to come and kill you, uh, they, they could do that. So uh, you follow this couple over many years of uh, being ground down through the system of uh, refugee application, and you become... Uh, it shows you enough of their just regular family life that you become, you know, sort of immediately feel a, an emotional bond with them and you start to root for them and you are in their process as they uh, face frustration after frustration and the slowness of the system and the fact that their problem is somewhat non-standard. And uh, part of the problem is that he was an informer for the uh, Iranian Secret Service. So there's a bit of a tradecraft hut thing in there, I guess. Uh, but it's one of those documentaries that lives and dies by what it captures on, uh, on film or on uh, digital format, I guess now. And it, it's, uh, I just found it incredibly moving and uh, as suspenseful uh, as any thriller could possibly be. So it's A Love Child uh, by Eva Mulvad. And my third favorite film is called So Long, My Son. It's a Chinese film from uh, Wang Zhaoshui, and it is very common to see Chinese uh, sort of family sagas that follow their characters over uh, a tumultuous many-decade period in Chinese history. Usually, though, that is either starts with the war and goes maybe to the Cultural Revolution or from the Cultural Revolution uh, into the 80s. Well, this one uh, is the first one I've seen that goes uh, from the 80s to the present day. And uh, it's about a, a couple. There's a family tragedy which is compounded by a terrible decision made by uh, someone else in their circle of friends and family who is uh, the one who enforces the one-child policy, and so there's, uh, and it's told in a a chronological order, moving back and forth between different periods. So I don't want to give away 
too much about this, but it's uh, both very moving and uh, harrowing in, in some instances, and is also an interesting example of just what degree does China allow the past decisions of the Chinese Communist Party to be examined on film because over the last year or so they have started uh, cracking down again and filmmakers have not been able to release their films or to get them out to the festival circuit. But uh, this uh, really amazing film uh, did get through. So I have no idea what is going on in the deep labyrinthine uh, recesses of the uh, tightening uh, censorship situation in China, but I'm really grateful that um, this one got through. Yeah, I mean, it's it's weird that, that you would, especially under the new Xi regime, that this sort of uh, look at something that I think is is still, I mean, they're, they're not practicing it as fervently as they used to, but it's still sort of official stuff, and to say that it's caused this hideous human tragedy is uh, maybe a little weird, but I mean, good for Wang, right? Yes, and uh, who knows what will happen next time. I think they're still at the point where there's what gets censored is incredibly capricious. You know, who knows how this got through, but I'm glad it did. Right. Well, all right. We've had grown-up relationships. We've had family drama. We've had the tragedy of refugees. Fine. Now we're going to talk Nicolas Cage screaming his face off against a meteorite monster. Robin, you somehow managed to see Richard Stanley's The Color Out of Space before I get to, which, on the one hand good. I'm glad it was a Toronto. On the other hand, it's a violation of everything I hold dear. So, uh, since I was literally standing uh, maybe 20 yards, not even 20 yards, maybe 20 feet from Richard Stanley when he got the call that greenlit the production, you tell me, how did it wind up? The color out of space. So was, was the call from uh, Elijah Wood, or was it from it his was from, uh, producing uh, partner? Malaysian guys, I think. Okay. Um, so, I'm here to report that uh, color out of space is uh, what we want it to be. Uh, so I got to see it uh, on the biggest screen it will probably ever play on. I showed it on an IMAX screen, although it is not shot on IMAX cameras. And if you are looking for a beat-by-beat literal adaptation of the short story on film, uh, this is not that. Uh, it's set in the modern day, for example. Um, and, of course, a film that uh, did that would be maybe about 28 minutes long tops. Uh, so this is a full-length feature film. And if you uh, don't like Nicolas Cage being Nicolas Cagey, this one, he has a an arc. He doesn't start out full Nicolas Cage. But guess what? When the meteorite uh, starts uh, messing with you, he gets Nicolas Cagey. So uh, that means the film does have a sense of humor. Uh, in this one, the family out in the woods near Arkham, uh, he's decided to farm alpacas, uh, which gets... Uh, has many opportunities for different things to happen, one of which is Nicolas Cage gets to say the word alpaca about 18 times in different ways, and I personally find that delightful. Um, you can tell uh, from the little references and tips and nods in it that uh, Stanley uh, first uh, got his copy of Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath from his mother when he was eight years old, and she told him to stay away from the Durlis stuff, so... There's the references are all there. They're what you want them to be. And it is genuine cosmic horror. And although it is funny at some moments, it is also uh, genuinely awful and distressing in some other moments. So uh, it does a great job of handling the question of how do you film the color out of space and, and acknowledge the fact that it's a new color. Uh, and I won't give that away either. But if you are 
willing to accept something that uh, has a sense of humor as well as horror, has Nicolas Cage doing. Uh, he has been hired to be Nicolas Cage and is set in the modern day. This played great in a hall full of people. It wasn't just me responding to it. Um, and so uh, I think that this is the first genuinely cosmic adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft's work that is also really good. Like the Stuart Gordon movies are Stuart Gordon-y movies that are riffing on Lovecraftian tropes, but this is the most philosophically Lovecraftian film that is also a good movie. Yeah, and although From Beyond is cosmic, the film is not particularly cosmic. Uh, and of course, Reanimator is just good fun with corpses, so nothing yeah. wrong with that, but it's not cosmic either. Well, that is good news, and I suppose once I've seen it, then we will have yet another segment on the on the Colorado Space, possibly for its very own hut. So keep your dials tuned, whatever you do with podcasts. Keep your app updated, um, and uh, we'll get back to this again in October. In the meantime, however, uh, I think maybe the next one we want to talk about, is it A Girl Missing, Robin? Um, yeah, so A Girl Missing is a uh, thriller from Japan, uh, from a director named Koji Fukada, and uh, it uh, is about a, a woman who's a nurse. She is tangentially involved in a situation that leads to uh, the uh, daughter of the woman she's a home nurse for, no, sorry, the granddaughter of the woman she's a home nurse for being briefly kidnapped. And this has terrible repercussions on her life. And once again, this is a dual timeline movie where you are seeing her in the present day uh, doing something strange and, and disturbing and stalkery, and you are also seeing what happened in the past that set her life on a, a terrible path. So uh, this is a very kind of naturalistic uh, style of thriller, but uh, because of the narrative and uh, the performance, particularly of the lead actress, you are uh, very much uh, uh, drawn into it. And so it is uh, has an intricate narrative that the, where the suspense is as much about finding out what has happened and how it all goes together as, you know, there's no big chase sequence at the end. It's uh, it's narrative suspense rather than procedural suspense. Cool, cool. But a thriller nonetheless, and therefore uh, yes. in our remit. And speaking of our remit, the trade Tradecraft Hut uh, welcomes Kami Tradecraft, just like it welcomes other Tradecraft. Uh, and speaking of commies, Oliver Aseos has made the Wasp Network uh, spy movie, or uh, what? what's going on with the Wasps? Uh, very much a spy movie. Um, so this... Uh, if you've seen Carlos, uh, also by SIS, this is, uh, a hearkening to that style and it has the lead of Carlos, Edgar Ramirez as the lead character here. And it's about, uh, in the early nineties, Cuba sent a network of moles posing as, uh, emigres and, and defectors to, uh, Florida in an attempt to, uh, penetrate and, uh, knock out the, uh, anti-Castro uh, uh, groups that were using uh, uh, violence uh, against it and, in fact, attacked hotels and there's a, a bombing incident. And so uh, the structure of this is very interesting and I think is the really cool thing about it. It has, uh, in addition to uh, Ramirez, it has Penelope Cruz, it has uh, Gail Garcia Bernal, so it's a, a star-studded cast of Latino actors. Uh, but the story is so complicated that it doesn't try to mush it all into a conventional structure with one protagonist, but rather keeps sort of restarting itself in order to introduce you to more uh, characters and more situations in order to sort of get the full sweep of it. So it's um, also kind of Soderberghian in that way. So it kind of has like 
it has a, an act one, and then instead of having an act uh, two, it has another act one where it brings in a whole other character. And then there's an act two for one of the other characters, and then another act two maybe, and then, oh, guess what? It's another act one. So as a student of screenplays and structure, it is really fascinating in the way it's sort of a kind of a tapestry that keeps folding in on itself and uh, eating its own tail and uh, and then moving back to where it was before. Um, and all of the scenes are really potently realized so that unlike a lot of narratives where you kind of get lost in the thing and wonder, why am I seeing this? Why am I seeing that? Asayas at this point in his career is, has enough uh, ability to uh, stage scenes and make them compelling that even though suddenly you're uh, you're suddenly identifying with a completely different character, that too is fascinating enough to keep you going. And also in the back of your mind, you're going, well, what's going to happen with the Edgar Ramirez character? So uh, I really recommend Wasp Network uh, to anyone who's interested in real life uh, espionage and or uh, watching a, uh, a screenplay uh, masterfully take a very complicated narrative and leaning into it. Okay. Um, and I guess the last thing that we're talking about in, in this segment, uh, before we go to a lovely commercial, is the last film of one of your very, very, very favorite filmmakers, Agnes Varda. And this is Varda by Agnes, right? Right. She died recently, but she knew that she was ill. And uh, as her sort of uh, last uh, cinematic uh, summing up, she took... A number of events that she did, a master class, uh, and uh, uh, one of the classes was specifically for film students, and another was sort of an evening with a thing with just film fans showing up, and then she took those and edits them along with other supplementary uh, interviews, like for example, when she's talking about her film Vagabond, she returns to the place where she shot Vagabond with Sandrine Bonar and talks about the process of doing it, Um, and so uh, it's one of her stylistically and structurally uh, formally complex movies about all of her other stylistically and formally uh, complex movies. And I think because she is in uh, control of it, I, I think it's a welcome corrective to over the last few years because she was such a beloved figure and she's very, you know, much warmer and more welcoming than, say, Jean-Luc Godard, another giant of the French New Wave. Well, as we learned from our previous Agnes Florida movie, Jean-Luc Godard is a jerk. Yes, and she is super adorable, but you can't let that make you think of her as just, you know, the beloved auntie of cinema. She's an extremely important filmmaker, and so she is able to uh, sort of focus in on uh, that aspect of her career and I think does a better job, and she's not sentimentalizing herself in that way. Um, And so uh, when you get a chance to see this documentary, if you're at all a fan of uh, cinema, it's well worth it and will make you want to go back and uh, watch our other films, many of which are currently on the Criterion channel, so you can do your homework. All right. Uh, On the uh, topic of homework, then, we should do our homework and uh, let uh, filthy commerce interfere with art just briefly. And when we return, more Toronto Cinema Hut. (laughs) 
Have you found the yellow sign? The King in Yellow, Robert W. Chambers' unearthly book, has inspired millions of readers since the death of the Gilded Age. A beautiful new edition from Arc Dream Publishing brings fresh potency to its stories of poisonous romance. This deluxe hardback features gold foil embossing and a leather cover in the black snakeskin pattern that Chambers described. A foreword by John Scott Tynes sets the stage. Annotations by Kenneth Height elucidate the secrets and histories of every tale. Samuel Araya's full-color plates and charcoal illustrations evoke the otherworldly weirdness of Carcosa. Every print order comes with the PDF digital edition. The annotated King in Yellow insinuates itself into our reality in July 2019. The ball begins. It is time to don your mask. Join the masquerade at shop.arcdream.com. Uh, we're back, uh, diving ever deeper, hacking our way machete style through the jungles, both literal and figurative of cinema. And I guess we're going to begin with the real jungle because we're beginning in Guatemala or a Guatemalan film, at least called La Llorona, Robin. And that's always a good sign unless it's a Blumhouse La Llorona that, that turned out to be terrible, despite having Linda Cardellini in it, which is very sad. But this is better, right? Right. Uh, so this is uh, from a director named uh, Jairo Bustamante. And uh, I've seen other Guatemalan films in the past that were clearly, oh, this is third world cinema. So, And I like some of them, and they're very good. But this one is, you know, a top to bottom, completely professional production. Uh, so the best uh, production values in, in music and acting that I've is seen. It, is it co-produced with Europeans or Americans, or is it all domestic? Um, I don't know uh, offhand where the... Uh, there's prob- every film now has money from somewhere else, right, but yeah. it, it's clearly... Uh, this is a step up for Guatemalan cinema. Well, good for that. And, uh, and definitely from a Guatemalan perspective. And so what it does is it uses the folk mythology of the weeping woman, the vengeful, watery ghost, and uses it to tackle the uh, history of genocide and war crimes in Guatemala and the impunity of the uh, people who committed those crimes. And so it's about a fictional ex-dictator of Guatemala who uh, is facing a tribunal uh, and uh, all of his buddies are still in power. So they know if uh, he goes down, so do they. So uh, uh, he he gets off. And so he's uh, in his home with the rest of his family. Uh, so it turns out that uh, some supernatural vengeance is uh, required, and perhaps some of it uh, focuses around uh, the uh, extremely beautiful Mayan uh, maid who shows up to uh, take on some of the work when all but the, uh, one of the rest of the staff quits on him when the uh, protesters show up. Uh, and you, for a while, you're thinking, oh, this might be one of those sort of... Uh, you know, realistic ghost stories or what kind of a, the turn of the screw. Is it supernatural or, or is it not? Um, and I don't want to give anything away, but it might have some ghosts in it. But there may be ghosts in a movie called La Llorona. Could happen. Continuing with our Tradecraft Hut th- sub theme, we have another Chinese film, Saturday Fiction. Uh, this is from one of my, uh, uh, a director that I've followed for years named, uh, uh Lu Ye. And this has Gong Li in it as well as, uh, uh, actors, uh, well-known actors from France, Pascal Gregory and Odegiri Zhou from uh, Japan. And you might guess from that casting that it's about the uh, period in Shanghai when uh, Japan has occupied most of Shanghai but has allowed uh, the French and English concessions to remain untouched. And uh, uh, Gong Li is a famous actress and she's uh, working at the behest of uh, this French spy master uh, and they're trying to uh, decode 
of the new uh, Japanese cipher, and so uh, she is taking advantage of her resemblance to the late wife of the cipher holder uh, in order to try and get those codes. And uh, the dates at the beginning of December in 1941 uh, may tell the historically aware what sort of doom spiral is involved in this. It's shot in black and white, has a sort of gauzy quality to it. It's not a glamorous uh, Hollywood studio black and white, rather, but almost sort of a French new wave black and white with handheld camera and uh, her, the play that she's performing echoes into what she's doing. And, uh, and so there's, uh, again, levels of reality is a big theme this year, if it's not a big theme every year. And, uh, once we get to the third act, there's, uh, the guns come out. Uh, so, uh, it's not a, not a conventional action thriller. It is about the, the murkiness of the world of espionage. But I think anyone who's interested in uh, Chinese cinema or in uh, espionage in that period will want to give a look to Saturday Fiction. Fantastic. And uh, one of our mutual favorite directors, Takashi Miike, has a new film, which is pretty standardly gangstery, right? Except it's funny. Uh, First Love? Uh, it's called First Love, uh, and this is uh, him working in sort of a more normal commercial vein, so it's not as experimental as some of his other films, and it's a straight-ahead sort of everything goes wrong on one night for a bunch of gangsters, and in particular uh, for a, a trafficking victim and a young a boxer who has received a brain tumor diagnosis. He tries to protect her as everything around them swirls uh, into violence in, in Tokyo over a, a complicated series of betrayals surrounding a drug deal. And, and basically he's working in kind of a the hard action comedy mode of, say, like a, a Walter Hill. So it's like a, almost sort of 48 hours-ish. There's a, the occasional flourish of weirdness, but it's a, a more a straight-ahead version of uh, of Takashi Miike because, of course, he makes so many films that uh, he has to do every single, not every single genre. He's done them all already. Now he's got to do every tone of every genre. Right. He's, he's so. going back and um, uh, and, and adding uh, uh, coloring to the to the sides. Absolutely. Okay. Speaking of films from countries you don't expect to see films from, you've got you found yourself an Ugandan film, which sounds uh, amazing on a, a bunch of levels. So let's talk about Crazy World. Right. So Crazy World screened as part of the Midnight Madness program and. The plot, such as it is, is basically an ex-cop who has seemingly gone mad and a martial artist team up to rescue victims of a child sacrifice ring. And this is... People familiar with uh, the Nollywood films of Nigeria are familiar with the super low-budget domestic product there. Well, this is zero budget. Yeah. They dream of a Nollywood budget. Yes. Uh, but... Uh, without even that, they do some stuff that Nollywood doesn't do, like edit quickly. And, uh, so, you know, the set is a road with some puddles and a garbage heap and, uh, some abandoned buildings. And the cast is like the kids of the producer director. And, but it's got this incredible uh, spirit about it of, uh, you know, we're going to make a movie anyway. And they've had got like homemade CGI effects. And it has also, speaking of Meditext, it keeps breaking. Uh, a reality. There are like ads will sort of drop in. For, there's a bit where there's like a trailer for the, another film drops in. Um, and it's got this sort of uh, almost sort of uh, Python-esque level of playing with reality. And a lot of that has to do with uh, the fact that it has a voiceover from a VJ, uh, a video joker. So uh, Uganda is uh, a small enough market that 
uh, films don't usually get subtitled for the local uh, audience. And so what you do is you have uh, someone deliver voiceover narration that explains what's going on in the movie in lieu of having an actual literal translation. But these uh, performers have become an intrinsic part of the movie-going experience and uh, do more than just sort of uh, translate, but they comment on the action and they make fun of what's going on and they uh, hype the action. And in this case, uh, uh, even though this is a, uh, a domestic film that is uh, sort of partially English and, and partially in uh, the language of Uganda, the video joker is still there commenting on the action. And sometimes he's providing important exposition. Sometimes he's just saying, and now the Waka stars, the Waka stars are all these uh, child actors who are like, they're not even preteens yet. And they're doing, they've been kidnapped, but they're beating up the bad guys. And uh, sometimes he will mock the characters on screen. And uh, sometimes he will just shout movie, movie, movie. And uh, this uh, is part of this sort of sense of exuberance and fun uh, that uh, comes out of this uh, zero budget filmmaking that shows uh, a, a love of film and a completely different way of appreciating and, and leaping into film uh, that uh, makes it just a really uh, a fun, delightful experience. Now, I don't know if I want to see one of these a year for the rest of my life, but th- to see one of them uh, really gives you a, a lens into a, a whole other way of experiencing film. But uh, more importantly, uh, just sort of the joy of creation and, uh, uh, and they did all sorts of cool things for this particular screening. The original Midnight Manda screening, I saw a rescreening, had a live track by the, uh, VJ. Uh, this one, uh, the one I saw had a recorded track, which was, uh, uh, translated with subtitles. But even in this one, there was a point where the, uh, uh, Ugandan Film Piracy Bureau stops the action on screen. And they call out, they discover that someone in the theater hasn't paid, and they print out a, a photograph of, of the non-paying uh, and It turns out it's uh, Peter Kaplowski, the programmer of Midnight Madness, who then comes out, talks to the screen. Someone in one of the costumes comes out and drags him out. So uh, this is a, you know, a film experience that is uh, uh, not just a film, but is uh, literally uh, coming out of the frame. Very uh, rocky horror. Yes, very much so. Um, the next couple of movies we have, we have a heist film from Argentina and a South Korean film, which should be enough for you uh, people, but it's also a thriller. So the Argentinian film is Heroic Losers uh, by Sebastian Bornstein. Uh, it is a classic heist movie with a bunch of uh, lovable underdogs, uh, but in this case it... Uh, once again, we're seeing a genre used to approach something uh, otherwise distressing, which in this case is Argentina's 2001 banking collapse. And so there, uh, this rural gang of uh, uh, pals are uh, banding together to empty the vault of the government official who stole all of their American dollars the day before the economy collapsed. And Bring Me Home is a South Korean movie, again, referencing uh, a distressing a real world uh, uh, situation where uh, you know child labor is exploited, and a lot of kids are even uh, uh, there was a, a scandal surrounding uh, kids uh, even being killed. But in this case, it's about a woman whose uh, son is missing, and she uh, gets a clue that possibly uh, he has been uh, taken, has been exploited by uh, this sort of group of uh, uh, scoff laws and ne'er do wells and uh, uh, borderline criminals and a corrupt cop. Uh, in this uh, fishing community, and she goes to uh, rescue him. And uh, it is 
in the the way of uh, uh, thrillers from uh, uh, South Korea and from Hong Kong, it's uh, it goes further in its emotional ruthlessness uh, than an American movie would, uh, and it's just a a, a straightforward. A nasty thriller that grabs you by the throat and doesn't let go. And uh, if you thought that was the worst thing that could happen on a fishing boat, uh, Ireland and uh, director Niasha Nasha Hardman has uh, their own opinion on sea fever. Robin, what's that about? Yeah, so uh, a goo horror was sort of a, a sub theme uh, this time around. Uh, uh, Hardiman has directed a bunch of episodic television, including episodes of Jennifer Jones, and you can see. Uh, from her control of uh, pacing that she does a, a really good job in what is basically uh, an infection horror movie in an isolated environment. So uh, we've seen those before, but this uh, sort of wrestles with the ethical and environmental issues of that. And also, uh, if you like, as a Lovecraft fan, if you like your terror to come from the sea, uh, the uh, infectious goop that uh, comes up from the deep to latch itself onto the boat and uh, mess with the people in the boat, it's the product of uh, this uh, gigantic uh, protoplasmic bioluminescent uh, previously unknown uh, uh, creature. But it uh, comes down to uh, the ethics of uh, what you do to uh, to what extent do you endanger yourself in order to protect uh, the environment and everyone else. And I know that we're all very tired of, uh, of this genre, Robin, but once more, if you would take us through the Indonesian superhero film uh, talk about Gundala. Right. Uh, so, Joko Anwar is an interesting uh, director. He did a film called uh, Satan Slaves, which is a cool uh, a remake of a sort of an exorcism horror uh, genre. Has now decided that uh, the way to get people to see Indonesian movies, uh, which uh, the theaters are full of Marvel and DC movies, so why not start a superhero cinematic universe? Because it turns out that there's a, a comic book company uh, producing Indonesian uh, comics uh, for many years with uh, superheroes uh, based uh, quite often on Indonesian folklore, and uh, they've already got this incredibly uh, complex continuity, so let's put it on the screen. And I don't think this is actually even the first time this character has been adapted, but uh, Gundala has lightning powers, and uh, uh, once he absorbs some lightning, he uh, uh, becomes uh, extra strong and gains fast healing, but he has to be recharged every so often, which is a, a problem. And this it has everything that you know from Marvel movies, like the here's the bit where it stops to introduce a character who doesn't matter in this movie, but might matter in a later movie. And here's the cameo from this other character. And, oh, the evil violinist guy, I bet he's a long-running supervillain who's, uh, you know, if you know these comics, you're leaning over to the person you're with who doesn't know the comics and explaining it. So I can't rank it super highly because for the same reason that I can't, rank the Marvel movies that have these flaws super highly. But as a student of pop culture, I think it is uh, bracing to see this formula being applied to somebody else's comic books that you have no idea who the characters are or what they mean. And, uh, and it's a, you know, it's a well-made technically uh, proficient uh, film, a uh, very Brown uh, Joker Anwar loves, loves Brown. <laughs> so it's, it's the Marvel palette then as well. <laughs> yeah. You know, here's the origin story that's clashing with the villain story. And here's the, 
here's the uh, the cameo that sets up the villain of the next one, and oh, here's the, this person is going to be in their own spinoff. So uh, it's uh, uh, a lot of and, and it's it's fun and well done, and uh, and, and definitely worth seeing as a, as a as I said as a student of pop culture. All right, um, there are more things which obviously you can go to Robin's uh, website and read about, and they will all be trickling out to other film fests. Cross fingers, some of them come to Chicago, and to your streamings and your uh, VODs and your whatever else, uh, and maybe even to real art houses. Uh, so keep a lookout for these and all the rest of the fruits of Toronto. Uh, well, Ken, I'm going to go off and uh, recuperate some more, but uh, we'll be back next week with a uh, with an, another episode of this very same podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Yelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Ensure that this podcast does not get lost between the Lightbox and the Scotiabank by emulating beloved Patreon backers Jean-Francois Paradis. Josh Joshua Brumley, Michael Bowman, Paul and Cleo Bushland, and Chris Lydon. Festoon yourself with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our new ultra on-brand design, Gaming Hut. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.